you're listening to the Depends on How You Look at It podcast, and I'm your host, Isaiah Bridge. Well, thank you for tuning in to Depends on How You Look at It. Today on the podcast, I interview my friend Tyler Jackson, and we're going to be discussing confessional Christianity. And more importantly, we're going to be discussing the Westminster Confession of Faith and quite a few chapters. We don't get to go over the whole thing because it's 33 chapters long, but we go over some really important parts and discuss why a church maybe should think about holding to a confession. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. We had a great time, and I really hope to have him back on the podcast to discuss covenant theology and a whole host of topics. I'll play the interview now. Well, I am so thankful to have Tyler Jackson on the podcast today. Tyler is a pastor in Indiana, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, of course. But we're going to be talking about something that I haven't really covered on the show, and that is confessional Christianity. What does it mean to have a confession you hold to? Well, Tyler and I are going to discuss that with the Westminster Confession, or sometimes that's shortened to the WCF. So, Tyler, can you tell my listeners about your background? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm a pastor in Newcastle, Indiana, uh, at Redemption Life Bible Church. Um, just finished my fifth year here uh, in September, starting my sixth year. Um, things are going really well. Just love the church. Uh, we've gone through a lot of changes, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. It's been a it's been a real experience, a real eye opener. Um, but God is doing wonderful things here. And uh, we're super excited about it. We're super excited to see what he's going to do in the future uh, with the church that he's building here. Um, I'm married. Been married for 10 years uh, on our 11th year of marriage. Uh, My wife's name is Kara. Yeah, Kara with a K. Um, I've got four children, three born and one on the way. Uh, My oldest. Yeah. um, My oldest is nine. Her name is Emerson. Uh, My second born is Eshton. He's six, my little boy. Elam is my third child, my little boy. He's two. He'll be three this next month. And then we've got one on the way and uh, due in April. We don't know if it's a boy or girl yet, um, but that's that's me in a nutshell. Okay. And um, so are they covenant children, Tyler? <laughs> yeah, I would say yes, they are covenant children. They belong to the church. They belong to the covenant and uh, yes and amen to that. Yeah, so listeners, we're going to be talking a little bit about covenant theology today. We probably won't do a huge deep dive into the infant baptism debate. Number one, because it's it's not really an issue for me. I don't have children, but I do find it funny to watch Reformed Baptist and uh, Pado-Baptists go back and forth about it, and I might host a debate between Tyler and another Reformed Baptist sometime soon. We'll see if we can get that put together. But my goal today is to talk about the really, really important things that everyone, regardless of your uh, Christian tradition, should hold to. And I think the, the Westminster really gets these things right. So before we get into that, Tyler, what is the Westminster Confession, and when was it put together? Yeah, that's a great question. Basically, I mean, there's a long story uh, and there's a short story. And so I'll give you the short uh, kind of summary of it. But it was put together in the uh, the 1640s in England. 
uh, between usually the dates that you hear are 1643 to 1648, so about five years. The dates kind of differ. It actually went longer. Uh, they have minute notes from the sessions that go, uh, I think, up into the, the 50s. Um, but basically, it was uh, the Westminster Divines were established in England um, by the Long Parliament. And, and the initial goal was really to kind of reform the Church of England. You know, this is after the Reformation. And um, and basically what they established the Westminster Divines for was to to reform the church's governmental structure, uh, its church polity, uh, and then to look over the 39 articles and to make sure that they were in alignment with reformed theology. Uh, but but what happened ultimately uh, was that England entered into what's called the um, the Solemn League and Covenant with Scotland and Ireland. And basically, now these three uh, nations were were going to come up with a church governmental structure, uh, a, a, a summary of Christian truth and doctrine, and it was supposed to unify these, these three nations uh, around Reformed theology. And so what happened was people from these nations uh, came together and they developed what is ultimately the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Confession, uh, the, the shorter catechism, and the longer catechism. So if you ever hear Westminster, uh, the standards, um, that's what the standards are. It's the confession, the, the longer catechism, and then the shorter catechism, which is the most famous of the catechisms. Uh, but that's essentially what it was. It was supposed to be um, – a group of men, a um, hundred or, or so uh, divines, pastors, uh, theologians who would come together, and they were to put together a document um, that really laid out the liturgy for the church, that laid out the theology and the polity for the church, and uh, and now we have the standards. Yeah, and I have downloaded those standards on my Logos Bible software, and I can read through them, and we're going to be going over some of those things, but I'm glad you uh, explained when people say the Westminster Standards, because I wasn't quite sure if they were simply referring to the confession itself or the, the catechisms that went along with it. So thank you for that explanation. Why do you think, Tyler, and we've talked about this a lot, but I, I want to get this on recording here. Why do you think it's so crucial that a local church hold to a confession such as the Westminster yeah, well, let me let me just start basically by saying, um, so Westminster aside, let's just say, why should a church have a confession mm-hmm. um, or some doctrinal standard? And my answer is that without that kind of, of thing, without that kind of system or a document or, or something that is written down, uh, basically whatever church you belong to without that is a city with no walls. It's a city with no protection, which makes it incredibly easy for false teaching of whatever kind uh, to enter into your church and really to corrupt and to corrode and to destroy your church from the inside out, whether it's from the pulpit, uh, whether it's in a Sunday school class where nobody knows what's going on except the guy teaching and the people in there. Uh, the youth group, the the kids' Sunday school class. If you throw open the door like that, and and your standard is no creed but, you know, no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ, um, which sounds really good and really. Um, Isn't that you know, a creed though? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But but the question is, what does that mean? And and to me, that means absolutely nothing. Uh, because uh, how many people do we know who have taken the Bible and they have they have butchered it, they have abused it, they have twisted it into saying things that it does not. Um, it might say things, but it doesn't mean what they're saying it means, you know. Oh yeah. Um, so so basically, I think that whatever you know, Westminster aside, I think the church, whatever local church, whatever uh, denomination, whatever you know, these people have going on in their life, their church life, uh, there must be some kind of standard. And why though uh, a historical standard like? you know, the Westminster Confession or the standards. Um, well, we have to also keep in mind that our church is not the first church that's ever existed. You know, our generation of, of Christians is not the first generations of Christians that have ever existed, uh, which means that God has been raising up teachers and theologians and pastors uh, in the church for as long as it has existed, which means that if we're not going to be prideful and if we're going to be um, humble and, and trusting in the Lord and, and trying to uh, understand the scriptures, then I think we need to, to to look back into history and to see what has been said about the scriptures. We need to understand the way that the scriptures have been interpreted throughout the ages, throughout the centuries. And then we need to understand our, our present church life, our present Christianity in light of all of that. Um, and I think what we will see is that guys in history like the Westminster Divines uh, were utterly brilliant and they were incredible theologians. And, ult and ultimately, I think that two of those guys on their own would put about a hundred of the greatest theologians we have <laughs> in our day to shame. You know, these guys were giants in the faith. They knew the scriptures. They knew you know, they were they were incredible. So all of that to say that I think every church needs a kind of boundary, a, a confession. Uh, but it needs to be a confession, I think, that is historically oriented because the church has existed for a long time. Uh, pastors, theologians, scholars have been working out the truths of Scripture for a long time, um, trying to summarize and formulate the doctrines of the faith. It's, it's been going on for a long time. And I think the, the standards are an excellent example of that, and I think it's about as good as you can get. That's why I love it so much. Yeah, and to, to put it plainly, we stand on the shoulders of giants, wouldn't you agree? Amen. Yes, I love that. Yeah. You know, some of my favorite theologians are long dead, Augustine being one of them, and I know Augustine is sometimes vilified because of the you know Roman Catholic connection, but... Augustine's satiriology is spot on. Um, I, yeah, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, you, if you read Calvin's Institutes, I mean, Calvin quotes him uh, all the time. I mean, Augustine was the first Calvinist, right? <laughs> right. Right. And and a lot of people don't understand that Calvin himself didn't coin the term Calvinist. He wasn't that prideful. Uh, right. That, exactly. I don't think was, he even liked it. He didn't he like it. He probably didn't. It, it was it was something. It was a response to the. Uh, let me say this correctly. The the remonstrance. Did am I saying that right? Yeah, I think so. Remonstrance, maybe. Remon right. Well, they had their Arminianism points, and so the reformers came up with you know a a succinct de uh, uh, succinct definition of what Calvin wrote, and uh, yeah. 
And they've been debating it ever since. Um, right. <laughs> that's right. And so they probably always will. I'll, probably always will. So yeah. why do you specifically hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith as opposed to maybe the London Baptist 1689? Yeah, well, uh, to frame the question that way, um, my answer to that would be the, the covenantal structure that's laid out in the Westminster Confession I, I see that view uh, in the scriptures more than I do see the London Baptist view, um, which we can get into that someday or, or, or we can talk about it now. But, uh, but that's, so that's one reason just in general is the, um, the Westminster standards are the architectonic structure is covenant theology. Uh, and so basically just to put it in a generic form, basically uh, the standards see two covenants running through the scriptures from Genesis into the New Testament, the New Covenant. That's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And the main distinction between uh, the standards and then the, the LBC, the 1689 guys, is that uh, they equate the covenant of grace with the New Covenant in such a way that um, there was not actually a covenant of grace in the Old covenant. Uh, They would say that there is grace, that people are really saved by the blood of Christ, that they're justified. Um, We agree on all of that. Uh, But the the Westminster Confession would say that the covenant of grace begins in the garden, uh, Genesis 3.15, and that it goes through different different administrations so that the substance never changes, uh, the essence never changes, but the the form of it, the administration does. So that's, that's one reason why I uh, love the standards and why I hold the uh, the Westminster Confession. The second reason, and this is not in comparison to the 1689, because this is uh, the, the same here as far as I'm concerned, um, but the Westminster standards are not just covenantal in their, their structure, but they are uh, reformed, meaning Calvinistic. Um, so unconditional election, total depravity, uh, particular or limited or specific atonement, whatever you know, key keyword uh, those guys out there like. Whatever makes uh, you feel better. <laughs> yeah, whichever one sounds less offensive, right? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Um, so that's that's clear in the standards, and you can clearly see um, where the divines are clearly building on Calvin and and the guys who have uh, come before them in his line. So that's, I mean, that's two of the big reasons, the covenantal structure, the Calvinism. Um, and then I guess the, one of the other things that I really love about the, the Westminster Standards, uh, and B.B. Warfield draws this out in his, um, his work on the, the assembly, but it, it's really like a, a miniature systematic theology. Um, If you think about the way that the confession is laid out, you have chapter one on the doctrine of the word of God, uh, which is like prolegomena. You've got chapter two, the doctrine of God, uh, theology proper. Uh, Then you move into the decree of God. And then you end. So you you move through um, all of that. You move through the covenants, the historia salutis, the history of salvation. Uh, You move into... Uh, the ordo salutis, you know, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification, good works, all of that stuff. And then 
and it goes through some other parts and sections, um, church discipline, marriage and divorce, all of that. But then it ends with, um, you know, our eschatology, the last things, death right, and resurrection, right. judgment, the return of Christ. So those are three big reasons for why I really love uh, the Westminster Standards. Yeah. Can you, um, when you say ordo salutis, can you make that a little more um, digestible for someone who doesn't speak Latin? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. So so basically, when we talk about um, redemption, uh, John Murray wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished, uh, Redemption Applied. And so redemption accomplished is what we call the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, which is really the the history of God's dealings um, with his people, bringing about redemption, bringing about salvation, which is then really focused in on the, the historical life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, that's the accomplishment of redemption, salvation, and all, the, all that the elect need uh, for eternal life, reconciliation with God, uh, forgiveness. Um, but then that has to be applied. The work of Christ, which is uh, secured and accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection as our covenant head, um, that work must be applied, and it's applied by the Holy Spirit. And when that work is applied, that's what we call the ordo salutis, which just means the order of salvation. Mm -hmm. And essentially what that means is that when the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us, to the elect, there is a particular order that happens. Um, there's a union with Christ that happens by the Spirit. There's Spirit-wrought faith. There's effectual calling. Um, and all of that then leads to justification that we're declared righteous and forgiven before God. Uh, we are sanctified positionally and progressively, um, which then ends in glorification, which is the end game. So that's the order, uh, the ordo salutis. It's the order of salvation, the way God applies uh, the work of Christ to us by the Spirit. And, um, you know, you see those kinds of things in Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. Right. I was just about to say, uh, we get that ordo salutis from you, the Romans 8, 28, all things work for good. But what most people stop reading at is uh, Paul still goes on to say, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a done deal for the elect. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful theology. Beautiful theology. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, the. The reason that Paul can say those whom he justified, he glorified, is because um, according to the, the Historia Salutis, the, the, the work of Christ, his finished work, um, in that sense, it is an absolutely finished, accomplished work. Um, Christ has been raised from the grave. He has ascended to the Father in glory as the God-man, the firstborn uh, among many brethren. And so what has happened for Christ in history is a done deal for the elect, um, although it still has to be applied. And so for Paul, he can say glorified, uh, aorus, past tense, uh, because of what's been accomplished in Christ. So yeah, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. Um, and there's a, a divine and sovereign stamp upon that promise. Yes. And I, I explain this to the listeners as it's kind of this already not yet 
you know, you've you've been justified, but at the last day you will be justified and glorified. It's all this time space that we live in because we're humans. It's all going to come to a glorious closure, if that makes sense. Yeah. So at this part of the discussion, because if Tyler and I are not careful, we're going to start talking reform theology and <laughs> waste right. two hours. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Me and him are both reformed. We're both five point Calvinists. If there was a sixth point, we would we would affirm it. And I, I think there is a sixth point. I think it's the sovereignty of God. And that's that should be the sixth point of Calvinism. But stool up doesn't sound too appealing. <laughs> hey, you know <laughs> so, what? When you uh, when you hold to the standards, you call yourself a 33 point Calvinist. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this part of the discussion, I'm going to start reading certain parts of the confession I'm going to have Tyler comment on them, and we're going to go back and forth about it. So unfortunately, we just cannot go over the entire confession. There are 33 chapters of this thing. It's taken him a very long time to even go through it in a Sunday school class. So I encourage you listeners to read it for yourself. You can Google the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can uh, download it on your Logos library. You can get a copy of it in, in a book form. But we're going to be discussing the parts that I thought would be relevant for this particular episode. So just know we're going to be covering a lot of different topics um, in this particular episode. So I'm going to start with chapter one, and uh, it's called Of the Holy Scripture, and it lays out the inspiration and and inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy means without error. And in section seven, the confession reads this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Now that is, unquote here, this is me talking, that's an immensely powerful statement about the Bible. You know, I call this show depends on how you look at it, but I want to be clear that while I think there are debatable things within the Bible, the gospel and the essential truth about the triune God are clearly propounded that even someone not educated at a seminary or anything like that can understand the gospel and the the triunity of God himself. Tyler, would you care to comment about this chapter of the confession? Yeah, um, I mean, this chapter is incredible. Uh, it's a glorious way to begin. And, you know, even B.B. Warfield in his um, in volume six of his collected works um, on page 155, he says, there is certainly in the whole mass of confessional literature, no more nobly conceived or ably wrought out statement of doctrine than the chapter of the Holy Scripture Uh, which the Westminster divines placed at the head of their confession and laid at the foundation of their system of doctrine. Uh, So that's B.B. Warfield, uh, the great Warfield talking about this chapter of the confession. Uh, And it truly is wonderful. You know, apart from the the section that you read, you know, this, this chapter teaches us much about the way God has revealed himself. You know, they, it, it begins in the very first section by talking about general revelation and how God has revealed himself and that which is uh, created, that which exists, um, which cannot save anybody, but it brings all men uh, to the place that they are without excuse because God's general revelation, his natural revelation is so uh, clear. But yet, because it can't save, because man is blind and dead in their sins and and um, 
you know, God has given special revelation, which is ultimately what we uh, see in his, his word. Um, and they go on to describe, um, you know, the way the word of God was, was given, how it's inspired, the way uh, it was written down. They, they tell us what books belong in the Protestant Bible. And I think uh, that's, you know, very important is that these yes. Westminster divines are, are showing us uh, the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation. And for anyone who reads the confession, they'll notice that, uh, you know, the Apocrypha, uh, which exists in the Catholic Bible, it is not there. And they clearly lay out here for us um, the fact that the Apocrypha was not inspired. Um, they give reasons for why um, it's not uh, or it should not be included in the scriptures. Um and so, and, and, and these guys are coming really on the heels of the Reformation, you know, um, happy Reformation month. But that's, that's why is because they are directly uh, a result or they're coming out of the Reformation. They're dealing with fallout from that. Um, but yeah, and then this, this section you read here, um, you know, I think is a really wonderful encouragement to um, the everyday lay person who, you know, they have a day job, they spend 12 hours a day working. They've got 30 minutes alone with their Bible. They don't have time to get on um, Logos and read Calvin and to read Thomas Goodwin or, or whatever. Uh, this, this tells that layperson, you can understand the book that God has given uh, to his people. If you have the Holy Spirit and you have uh, God's word in front of you, uh, you can understand uh, the majority of what he wants to tell you, what he wants to teach you. You can understand the gospel. You can understand uh, salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ. Um, you know, but it also teaches us that there are things in Scripture that are challenging. Um, so while people should read the Bible and they should read the Bible confidently, uh, believing that they will understand uh, what God is saying in, their, in the Scriptures, uh, we also come at the Word of God humbly. And we realize that, um, you know, even Peter says that Paul writes some things that are um, difficult to understand sometimes. And so, um, you know, there's, there's that famous quote. I don't even know who said it anymore, um, you know, where they say that the scriptures, um, there's, there's places where it's shallow enough for a child to splash in it, deep enough for an elephant to uh, to wade in it. And uh, I have certainly found that to be to be true myself. Absolutely. That is, um, as I read that and it, it spoke to me in the confession because I'm, I am not a, I haven't been to Christian college. I haven't been to any college. I am simply just a guy who has a lot of Bibles and commentaries and, and study tools. And, um, I like how the confession is like, you know, we're not, God hasn't called everybody to be, uh, in the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, ivory tower. And yeah. I, I think that's really, the, the church, the local body, and can be encouraged by that. Now, um, going on to chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity, this lays out the truth that there is only one true God and that within the Godhead, there are three persons. Now, section three reads, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Tyler, I believe this is foundational and has been severely ignored in many churches. The Trinity is one of my favorite subjects to teach on, and it's foundational to my faith and understanding of God. Would you agree with me that without the Trinity, 
it's easy to fall into heresy and make a mess of scripture? Uh, yes, big time. Um, you know, and I would say that that so many of the um, the ancient councils and synods, you know, they were a, a direct result of of not getting the triune God right, uh, not understanding the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not understanding um, who Christ was as the second person of the triune Godhead, eternal, same in substance, equal in power and glory to the Father and the Spirit, um, who then took on flesh, becoming the God-man. So yeah, I, I think, um, you know, we don't talk about the Trinity a lot, uh, it seems to me. I mean, I feel like I do, because I'm with you. I love the the Trinity. I love talking about the triune God. Um, and I do think that... that um, when you lose the triune God, uh, you lose the, the God of Christianity because he cannot be uh, the God of Christianity um, if he's not triune. So, yeah, I, I think this is something that we have got to nail down the best we can. we got to think about it. We've got to um, read and study and get it right because I think it is at the, the very core uh, of our faith for sure. Right, and I think it plays into apologetics as well. I'm a I'm a presuppositionalist when it comes to apologetics, and basically that means I presuppose that the triune God of the Bible exists, and he is the reason that we live and move and breathe and have logic, and I truly don't care at all to talk evidence with an unbeliever um, because so many times the unbeliever is very clear that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you show me. I'm not going to worship your God. And it takes a miracle of a change of the heart for someone to understand the gospel and and and, and understand uh, their, their, their reason for existence is to glorify that triune God. And I know many Christians who could tell you about their end times belief, but probably not articulate an orthodox definition of the Trinity. So I seek to remedy that by stressing the importance of that doctrine. Ultimately, though, a Christian must study and understand how the Bible presents God's triunity. And one thing I so love about this confession is how it articulates the Trinity and the attributes of God. I could not say it any better than what section one of uh, than section one of chapter two does. Um, and and one more thing on apologetics. What I mean by that is you can win the court case of evidence with people. You can show that the Bible is historical, that they're, they're, the ancient Israelites were a people, and, and this, that, and the other. You can even talk about the cross and the historical Jesus. But again, most unbelievers couldn't care less. I mean, Ben Shapiro is on record saying, yeah, I couldn't care less about that. I could not care less about the evidence, because it comes down to a heart problem. So yeah. what we have we have to presuppose that they are dead in sin, and that the only the only way they will understand God is by us preaching the gospel to them directly and telling them that they are suppressing that truth of the God they know created them. Does that make sense, Tyler? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what you're saying? Um, I love it. Amen. I'm right through with you. And, um, you know, for the listeners and for anybody out there who is interested in this, I mean, w when you say that, what I hear is uh, Cornelius Van Til, um, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, that's. Um, if one reads the defense of the face, the, the, the defense of the faith by Van Til, um, that's exactly what he says. That's exactly what he argues. Um, 
you know, and, and for me, Van Til is, he is a consistent confessional uh, reformed theologian and apologist because he understands exactly what you just said. And that is to be uh, consistent with our theology and with the confessional standards. Um, you cannot be uh, the kind of apologist that is banking your your hope on uh, certain facts or certain arguments that you can point out to an unbeliever. Because, um, you know, one of the things that Van Til teaches is that you can do that all day long and you can get them to believe in an inferior God. Yep. Um, and that's that's one of the, the problems sometimes with apologetics is that, you know, Van Til says that he, if he's going to defend the faith, he is going to defend the highest form of it. Uh, which for him is reformed confessional theology, which is what it is for you and, and I. Um, and um, but but you know if you're just aiming for a kind of mere Christianity or a kind of a divine being that has created all things and that um, you know has a plan for the world and um, you know you always end up with an inferior God, which is why I think you have to begin presuppositionally. Uh, with the triune God who has decreed all things, his, his, uh, the knowledge of God is stamped on every human soul. Everybody knows God. There are no atheists uh, theologically. All that there are, are there are, there are rebels and there are enemies of God uh, suppressing that knowledge and warring against it, uh, as sweet as they might sound on the outside. Um, and so, yeah, I'm right there with you. And, and I think that getting our understanding of the triune God right um, is, is maybe the most important thing we can do if we're going to understand um, and rightly interpret the rest of Scripture and the rest of Christianity. Um, and, you know, and when I say that, that without the triune God, uh, you can't have the God of the Bible, and you can't even have God at all. And what I mean is— um, the doctrine of the triune God makes it so that God is self-contained, mm -hmm. that he is self-existent, and that he does not need anything outside of himself as the triune God uh, to be who he is. Uh, and for example, you know, one could say, well, how can God love if he doesn't have anything to love? Um, how can he be loving if he doesn't have anything to love? Well, the answer for us is, is that he has eternally loved his son, um, which yeah, means that yeah. the triune God does not need anything outside of himself. He doesn't need a world. He doesn't need human beings uh, so that he can be loving. Um, the love that he has uh, in and of himself as the triune God then overflows into the world uh, and his love for his people, his elect. So, so that's just one example where if you lose the triune nature of God, uh, you really lose uh, who the God of the Bible is, because the God of the Bible doesn't need anything outside of himself at all, uh, whereas every other God uh, that you could conceive of, they would. To be personal, they would need somebody else to be personal with so that they can be personal, uh, but not the triune God of the Bible. He's self-contained, and uh, yeah, it's, it's glorious. And we are not just saying this because we like Cornelius Van Til. This is what the Bible has to say about it. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, Psalm 14, 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Yeah. Amen. Uh, 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and I'm, I'm losing the chapter in my head at the moment, but the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the gift of God. It's the power of God. Yeah, so, you know, right, he, right there in that, um, right there in that whole section, First Corinthians one and two. I mean, that's, I mean, Paul is is saying exactly what you, what you were saying in the beginning about man being blind and and dead in their sins and unable in their their fallen natural state to receive the things of God. I mean, we've got to come at people um, preaching the triune God, preaching the gospel, trusting in. Uh, the Holy Spirit to regenerate and to grant uh, repentance and faith. That's where our hope is, uh, not in some, you know, plethora of scientific or, or you know, whatever arguments that we can, you know, try and win them to an inferior God or something. Yeah, I and what we're saying, listeners, is the Bible presents two kinds of people, those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. And guess what? There is no neutrality within that. You are right. either a regenerate believer who has Christ as your head. And what we mean by that is he died for you. He represented you on that cross. Or you're an unbeliever and you're still represented by that first man, Adam, who plunged humanity into the curse of sin. And with that um with that degree, with that difference in, in people here, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So I think Paul really has the Proverbs in his head from the Old Testament. He's talking about wisdom and folly, uh, and he he once again makes a theology out of that because the natural man thinks Truly, that we are absolutely stupid for what we believe, but it is not until the Holy Spirit does that miracle of regeneration that the cross becomes the power of God. Would you agree with that, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, amen. Awesome. So we, Tyler and I love apologetics. We love talking about the triune God and we could probably spend hours doing this. I plan to have him back on the show many times to discuss covenant theology because it all is a beautiful thread. Um, and unfortunately, we're just kind of picking at certain knots in the thread here. But it, it really is from Genesis to Revelation, a covenantal structure of what the triune God has set up. And there is there are two kinds of people. There are those in Adam and there are those in Christ. But we're going to get into that a little bit here because we're going to move into chapter three of the confession. And it's called of God's eternal decree. And this is the part where I offend some of my listeners. And I think I've already said this, that I'm a Calvinist and I believe that God has ordained whatever comes to pass. Tyler, I'm not even sure where to begin in this chapter. I believe this is yet another area of theology that is neglected in many churches, the decree of God. Can you give me a synopsis of this chapter and how this impacts your Christian faith? Yeah. Um, so basically, um, the, the decree of God, uh, so the catechism, I think it's question seven or eight. Um, it says, what is the decree of God? And then the answer is, it's his eternal purpose. Uh, according to the counsel of his own will, whereby unto his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes uh, to pass. And so that's that's how the catechism uh, defines the decree of God. But basically, um, what this chapter is about is it is about the eternal plan of God before time, before creation. This is eternity past. 
Um, this is God in eternity past foreordaining and planning uh, whatsoever comes to pass. And so the way I explain this to our Sunday school, uh, just to try and help them wrap their mind about it, uh, to wrap their minds around it, um, you know, so instead of, instead of trying to start outside of time in eternity past, which is already hard for us to even, uh, you know, consider or to comprehend or to think about, um, what I said to them is, I want you to think about everything uh, that has ever happened in human history, everything, every dot and tittle, every motion of every molecule, um, everything in history, everything in the present, um, and try to wrap your mind around everything that will ever be in this world. Now, if you could take everything that has ever come to pass or is coming to pass or will come to pass – and you could wrap it up in a single package and you could take it into eternity past in the mind of God. Uh, that is the eternal decree. Uh, and so basically what the eternal decree is, is it is um, the, the historical plan of God, which now has paved the way for every event, every action, every happening um, in human history. And it is unto his own glory, which means – in, in simpler language, um, that everything that's happening all around us, as painful as it is or as pleasurable as it is, um, it is ultimately from the eternal decree of God, which means that God is in absolute control uh, of everything that is ever happening in whatever nation, you know, whatever's going on, God is in absolute control of it um, because he has decreed it because he has ordained for it to come to pass uh, for his own glory. And so, of course, there's mystery there, um, you know, how God is bringing these things to pass. You know, we could talk about that, primary agents and secondary agents and, and all of that. But essentially, um, this just means that, that history is God's story, uh, that he is in control. And, I, and as a Christian, I mean, I, man, I, I take comfort in that because, I mean, the world's a mess. <laughs> Life oh, yeah. is a mess. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like everyone is dealing with so many things and, and heartbreaking things and hard things. And um, the, the, trying to live in this world and to live through those things, thinking that somehow this was not in the plan of God and somehow that, that God is not in control of all of these things. And that somehow um, these things have come into being apart from his uh, will um, I mean, what, what hopelessness, you know, I mean, yeah. if something bad's going to happen, I want to know that God has a purpose for it so that I can have some hope in the darkness, you know? Um, so yeah, this, this chapter is, is glorious as well. The whole thing is, yeah. And, and we would base a lot of what we just said off Ephesians one and, uh, Specifically in, in verse 11, Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So uh, Ephesians is very, very heavy on the idea that God has chosen us in salvation, but not just salvation. God is working everything to the counsel of his will, and we're just we're just a part of that decree. Um, yeah. and, and since we're talking about God's decree, I'm going to skip some sections here, and we're going to go to chapter 9 of free will because this this gets 
interesting really quick. So let me read the first few sections and then we can discuss. And I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot of this old English, so bear with me. Uh, It says, God hath endowed or endued the will of man with that natural liberty that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Man, in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So those last few sections make total sense. You know, man cannot save himself, dead in sin. But the first few sections, uh, it talks about man had free will to do good and things that are pleasing to God. So I think it's interesting that the confession states that maybe man had free will before the fall. How do you reconcile this with what you believe about God's decree? Yeah, well, um, basically, I think what the the confession is saying here, um, so when they say of free will, uh, or they talk about the will of man, um, in light of chapter 3, and in light of their theology in general, um, they do not mean that man is autonomous, uh, that man has um, the kind of freedom that God has. uh, So we would— would we classify this as we're not saying – or the, the confession is not saying man had libertarian free will, but like a creaturely will that was still under the decree of God? Absolutely, yeah. What, what they mean here is that um, – so when Adam was created in the garden, Adam was created with a will uh, by which he would – choose to obey God, trusting every word that comes from the mouth of God, um, or Adam being mutable in the state of innocence with the potentiality of falling and sinning um, and then dying as a result of that sin. Um, all that they're saying is that is that Adam was not created as a robot um, and that mankind is not robotic. So there is, there is a mysterious... Um, you know, way in which the sovereignty of God and the decree of God and predestination and all of that works together with the will of man. Um, but what they're doing here is they are trying to uh, to teach us that when Adam was created, uh, he was created with a kind of will um, that that would allow him to remain in his state of holiness, to choose uh, obedience, to choose uh, walking with the Lord, to choose obeying the Lord. Um, and yet he could also choose to disobey the Lord and to um, and that's what he did. And that's why he uh, he sinned and he fell. So so there um, so there's a kind of freedom of the will that Adam had um, that that we now as fallen human beings in Adam uh, before our regeneration. I, I want to be very clear about that. Um, Adam had a kind of will in the beginning um, that we born into this world as sons of Adam do not have. And that's what the confession is saying in chapter three, um, is that now because of the estate of sin and misery, because we're all all born in Adam, 
uh, we are not born with that kind of freedom. Um, we are not born with the freedom just to um, to repent and to believe and to choose God as if we are autonomous, um, as if we have that power inside of us. We are now dead in our sins and trespasses. We are enslaved uh, to sin. And so um, so that's that's what they're doing there is they, they want us to see that Adam had a kind of freedom and um, and the catechism even says that our first parents left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created. So there was a freedom that they had uh, that we don't have. And 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 my goodness, you know, <laughs> so many people I know are arguing for free will and they're fighting for that that doctrine and that theology. Um, you know, Arminians and Pelagians and semi-Pelagians and all of that. But, but when I look at what Adam's free will got him, <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure it's something that um, that I want to be fighting for. I'd rather God be uh, sovereign over me and in control by his spirit and, and working in through my working and willing um, than me being autonomous or something like that. That's a disaster. I, I agree. The more the more God writes, the freer I am, to quote Doug Wilson. And um, I, I agree. I don't want to be completely in charge of my life like that. Now, again, we're we we are compatibilists. We believe we are to make decisions and obey God. But we know that ultimately God is directing our steps and we cannot crash his plan in any way. Yeah. So. Um, but that doesn't yeah, mean we know, can't crash ourselves. Right. And and what I like to say is that, um, you know, God is willing in our willing and he is working in our working. I think that's that's kind of yeah. a paraphrase of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But, um, you know, and, and the confession talks about this in, in chapter three. I think it might be the last section um, where he talks about. Um, or they talk about the fact that while everything is decreed, that also includes the means. Uh, that includes every single thing, which means that that bound up in the decree of God is the willing of man yes. uh, to do whatever man chooses to do. So they're, they're uh, I mean, this is a, a razor's edge, and, and you can tell that they are uh, brilliant theologians, and they are trying to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. And, and so what, what they mean is that we absolutely will and we choose and we do exactly what we want to do. Um, but in and through all of that, God is still sovereign and his decree is coming to pass. But he has decreed it to come to pass in and through our willing and our activity and our doing. Um, and honestly, I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time helping people uh, to see this. And, and, and typically I go to three places to, to show them how God's sovereign plan, his predestined plan, his decreed plan uh, is coming to pass through the willing and, and doing of men, even sinful men. And, um, you know, the story of Joseph and his brothers is a, yes. is a glorious place to see where uh, God's sovereign plan is coming to pass through the sinful deeds and the sinful willing of men. Um, you know, Joseph even says what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And yet you read that story and we all admit that what his brothers are willing and thinking and doing was wicked. Um, and yet David's or <laughs> Joseph says, God sent me here, you know. So so there, there's a place where we see 
the uh, the decree and the sovereignty and the providence of God at work in and through the willing and activity of man, and then obviously the gospel itself, um, you know, Acts two and Acts four, where it's right. so clearly laid out for us that that Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews were doing, they were willing and they were doing, and they were bringing about the very plan of God, which was predestined. Um, and, and planned. And so like whatever his hand had willed them to do, like it, it yeah. says something very detailed there. Um, yeah. And I believe, and I, I know enough original language to get me in trouble, but even in the Genesis 50 Joseph story where the word meant uh, the, the verb there is the same in both statements where Joseph's brothers meant evil and God meant good. So there was this um, equal, plan on both ends if that makes sense that it wasn't god oh god changed what they did for good no god intended it like the entire thing absolutely yeah the, the word is the same there and i think the point is exactly what you just said and that is that um that god was at work in their willing and in their working to bring about his plan the plan that he meant for good uh which was a, a plan that they had meant for evil um so yeah, the point is that God was absolutely in control of that. It was his plan, and they were bringing it about uh, with their willing and their choosing and their doing, uh, even though it was sinful. Right, and to, to quote James White here, God is sovereign over the ends as well as the means, uh, and that's why we pray too. What if our prayers are a part of those means to those ends? I think it all goes together very beautifully, and we do appeal to some mystery there because we're finite creatures, yeah. and it's above my pay grade to try to sit there and judge the decree of God. Right. Um, and that, well, if you don't, if you don't mind, um, you know, section six of chapter three, it, it says this. It says, as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Um, which is what you just said in quoting James White. And that is that uh, in the decree of God, we don't just have the ends decreed. It's not just the ultimate goals and outcomes that are decreed. Uh, and then the means and the paths let, left up to the freedom of men and, you know, or, or whatever. Um, but even the very means and the paths and the ways of bringing about the ends, uh, God has decreed. And um, that means that he is, sovereign over Joseph's brothers. He is sovereign over Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews. Um, and they were bringing about what his decree was. And yet they were still responsible because it was their willing and it was their doing and it was their sin, uh, which led to, uh, the crucifixion of, of the Messiah. Right. There wasn't a gun to their head. They wanted right. to do it. Uh, so, um, I'm not going to be going over chapters 10 through 18. Those chapters outline the doctrines of grace or what's known as Calvinism, and I think Tyler and I pretty pretty much just did a soapbox on that in of itself. But let me just say that you should read these chapters for yourself. I believe the confession does a great job at outlining the specific truth. We don't just uh, we just don't have enough time to really do them justice on this episode. I mean, we're just still here talking about the decree of God. We haven't even gotten to the tulip all that much. Um, but I'm going to move on to a controversial topic and probably the only major topic I foresee 
Tyler and I may be disagreeing about, and that's that's cool because we're brothers in Christ, and we can do that respectfully. So we're going to move to chapter 21. It's called Of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. Now, this chapter outlines the belief that the Sabbath is still binding on Christians in the New Covenant. So I'm going to read sections 7 through 8, and I'm going to have Tyler comment. As it is the law of nature that in general a due due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and wholly rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Tyler, I would love your thoughts on the Sabbath. Are you a Sabbatarian? And if so, how strict are you? Yeah, um, well, if, if a Sabbatarian is a guy that is miserable on Sundays and, and won't play with his kids in the yard and, and uh, you know, won't do anything fun at all, then I, I'm not a Sabbatarian. Okay. Um, but I, I do hold the Lord's Day. Uh, or the Christian Sabbath in, in very high regard, and historically it, it has been uh, held in high regard. Um, I, I think, you know, I think you, um, I think you and I would agree that the most important thing about the Lord's Day is a resolute dedication to meeting with the saints, uh, the visible uh, corporate church for worship. Uh, for for hearing the the word of God preached for um, for singing for worshiping God um, when I think about the Christian Sabbath um, I mean that's that is a priority uh, that's a that should be a focus and uh, and I don't think anything uh, should come before that if we can help it you know providential okay. hindrances obviously we can't help if you're if you're sick if you've got the flu. Um, but I, you know, I'm a firm believer that that parents should not allow their kids to play sports um, on Sundays, at least uh, during the corporate service of their uh, particular church or location. Um, you know, some stricter Sabbatarians would would say they shouldn't play sports at all on Sunday. Um, you know, and I, I respect that, but I also understand that it's hard enough to get so many professing Christian parents in our culture to not have their kids playing sports on Sunday at all. You know, so I, so for me, um, this is, um, you know, that when it comes to the confession, there are certain areas where, uh, there are hills that I would die on that I would not, uh, budge at all. I would not bend at all. Um, but the section on the Sabbath, as long as we were in agreement on the importance of the Lord's day, uh, the importance of corporate worship, the the importance of um, you know the day itself. I I, I would not 
you know, be too argumentative or too uh, dogmatic about it. Um, but yeah, I, I typically, there are things that I try not to do. I don't usually mow my yard on the Lord's day. Um, it's just a personal thing. I just, I don't like to do that. I like to, uh, you know, technically I work on the Lord's day. <laughs> you profane uh, the Sabbath. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like a priest in the temple. Um, you know, but, but my Lord's day is, you know, I wake up, I try to wake up around 5 AM. I spend a couple hours with the Lord, uh, and, and his word and, and prayer and preparing to preach and to teach Sunday school, um, you know, I teach Sunday school at 9.30. We have church at 10.30. Uh, lasts anywhere from an hour and 15 to an hour and a half. We'll, we'll have lunch after afterwards. And occasionally we will go out to eat with friends and stuff after church, which uh, a stricter Sabbatarian would probably not do that. But occasionally we will. And then I go home and I spend the Lord's Day with my kids. I read books. I try and spend as much time as I can with the Lord. I'll play with my kids outside. We love to have bonfires and stuff when it's chilly. Um, so we try and rest. We try and devote our day to the Lord and, and to family time and to uh, to rest. Um, but I also don't want to be overly legalistic about it. And I know that in our culture, for a lot of people, the uh, Sunday is just another day to work. It's another thing, another day to get things done. It's another day for sports. Um, and so if I'm going to pick something to really bang on, it's going to be um, carving out that time for corporate worship with the church. Man, I totally agree. I don't, I don't have one thing to disagree with you about on everything you just said. In fact, I was driving to church early one morning um, last week and I passed a soccer field and it's, you know, it's like 730 in the morning and uh, those kids are out playing soccer and, and, you know, they're having fun. But maybe this is judgmental of me. And if it is, I repent. But I, I had to think, I wonder if they're going to end up in church today or I wonder if this is an all day tournament, you know, because it's kids need to be in church on Sundays. Now, again, I don't have a problem with after church going to get ice cream and playing some football in the yard. Great. That's what I did when I was a kid. Um, so I want to be clear that I believe it is absolutely historical that Christians have worshipped on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is that's not up for debate. What I'm not convinced of, though, and it doesn't sound like you're convinced of this either, I'm not convinced that Sunday carries the same Mosaic law restrictions that Israel kept on their Sabbath. I think it gets really hard to define what recreations we should set aside as well. And I do not dispute that God wants us to rest and even set aside a day for worship and rest. However, I dispute that we are under the same restrictions that the nation of Israel was. And I, I plead my case with Colossians 2 and Romans 14, and I realize that Sabbatarians are aware of those verses, and they have their way of reading those verses. And I'm not really convinced by their interpretation of them. But I, I've talked to guys online that, that eat cold chicken on Sunday because they won't turn on their oven. And I mean, <laughs> it, it. I'm serious. And it it sounds like bondage to me, Tyler. And yeah, listen, I ain't eating cold chicken, okay, yeah. brother? <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, you know, I've, I've heard that, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't watch the football game or whatever. And, and you start picking and choosing what you can and can't do. Well, can you use the internet? Can you use your Logos Bible software? Is that a noble use? And what happens to our country as far as law enforcement and medical workers? And then you get this, this kind of excuse of, well, those are acts of mercy. And then, and I, it just, what if 
what if we just said, hey, we need to set aside a day to worship the Lord and leave it at that? Because that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm i there with you. Um, I, I don't know. I would I know we're not on here necessarily to debate the Sabbath or, or whatever, but, but it's a discussion. Um, yeah, I mean, I I agree with you totally. I, I don't think we're under the same kind of stipulations um, as the Mosaic Covenant. You know, I think that served its uh, specific purpose, and it um, it went away with the nation of Israel, um, which I think the Confession teaches that as as well. Um, you know, the Confession talks about a general equity of the law, so there are principles that I think we could put in place um, for our understanding of the Lord's Day. But I think in general, those principles are, um, you know, if you don't have to work as far as a job, um, you know, my, my opinion, you know, as a pastor and if, if someone from our church came to me and they said, um, you know, I worked the last six days, Monday through Saturday, they're going to pay me overtime if I work tomorrow or if I work the, the next four Sundays, um, I would encourage them not to work the next four Sundays uh, because they've worked six days and the Lord's Day is a day of rest. It's a day of, of worship. It's a, de- a day devoted uh, to the Lord. You yeah. know, so I there are um, in certain instances and situations, you know, I think I would uh, lean that kind of way. Um, you know, it, it is it can be difficult to argue that Sunday is called the Sabbath. Um, I, you know, I think there is zero evidence for that. I think it's purely tradition, and I'll just leave it at that. But, um, you know, I know Revelation chapter 1, I believe, says, you know, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Most Reformed Christians have taken that as Sunday, and that's fine. But I don't recall John saying I was in the Spirit on the new Sunday Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> so I, well, you, you know, know what I'm saying? So- yeah, well, and some of the arguments. Um, so in the Gospels on the first day of the week, um, some some guys will will translate that as the first day Sabbath. Yeah, um, no. Yeah, well, because the um, it it's a possibility. Um, I I think it's kind of a a shallow argument. I think it's kind of um, you know you're you're trying to to find a way to argue. Honestly, for me. The most um, persuasive argument that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, because uh, I, I totally agree with you. Colossians two, Romans, um, well, any, anywhere that yeah. Paul talks about the Sabbath really not being enforced yeah. or whatever, I, I think that's connected to the Mosaic covenant um, and all of that. So that that Sabbath principle uh, did, I think, go away with. With Moses, but I would say that, um, and that Sabbath goes away with the old heavens and the old earth, because because remember, you know, Genesis uh, two one through three, uh, the Sabbath was uh, the seventh day after creation. It was built into the the Ten Commandments. It was built into the whole law structure of Israel. Um, but for me, what's most persuasive is um, Isaiah Isaiah sixty six twenty two where it says for the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord. Uh, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon. And from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So even in Isaiah, the prophet, 
when he's prophesying about the new heavens and new earth, which I would argue uh, began with the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits. Isaiah, uh, the Lord says in Isaiah that there is a Sabbath, uh, that this time is measured from Sabbath to Sabbath, which um, in the new covenant, that's got to be Sunday. That's the day of rest. That's the day um, in which Christ, he worked, he was raised on the Lord's day on Sunday. He rested from his work of redemption and recreation. And um, so I, I think that's where you actually see the word Sabbath in connection with the new heavens and new earth. Uh, which is a new covenant uh, reality. But yeah, regardless, I think you and I, and I think, you know, hopefully a lot of other Christians, we can agree uh, that there should be something special in our families and in our lives about the Lord's Day. Um, and if nothing else, I, I really wish, I really pray, especially for our, my own church, um, that our congregation would guard that worship time yeah. uh, especially. Yeah. Hope you've understood that I'm not arguing against Sunday worship. It's uh, oh yeah, I know, I know, brother. It's simply that strict Sabbatarian stuff where again you're eating cold chicken you cooked Saturday night, and it's I mean, I just don't. I'm a big New Testament guy, and no, I don't believe the Old Testament is irrelevant or anything like that. But I, I really try to pay attention to the arguments that the apostles make with the Old Testament in connection with Israel and the people of God and what what James does with Amos 9:11 and Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council and how when you read Amos it seems like this brick and mortar prophecy but but James says nope this is the Gentiles becoming part of the people of God. You know, yeah. I try to pay attention to those things and so far I haven't seen them connect the Sabbath to anything within the New Covenant. I know Hebrews talks about that rest, you know, don't harden your hearts, and that we haven't fully entered that rest yet. Um, but that can be read in a couple different ways, but it, it certainly doesn't sound like Christians are under that, you know, Isra Israeli Sabbath the way um, – Israel did it. So I guess that's really all I have to say on it. But I think Tyler and I are in agreement. So there should be something special about worshiping the Lord on Sunday with your family. And even in this time of pandemic, if you have to do it online, it should be you should set aside a time of, of study and prayer and time with your, your family. And my wife and I try to do that the best we can. And no, I'm not going to lie. I still, you know, in the afternoon, I turn on the football game, but I, I feel free in my Christian liberty to do that. I don't feel now if the Lord convicted my heart and I needed to study more. I mean, he's he'll be real clear. The, the, the Holy Spirit's real clear about that stuff. But how would you answer someone like me who wants to be confessional but disagrees with the Sabbath statement specifically in the confession? I mean, I guess you just answered that, but do you have anything else before we move on? No, I mean, I, I would just say that and I think I said this before a little bit, but I – so just the confession in general and any issues that people might have with it. Here, here's my opinion, um, and this is my opinion with our church, and I've, I've been talking to them about this. And um, I would much rather have uh, a giant wall of sound doctrine that protects our church and our lives and our standard of faith and practice. You know, I would rather have a giant wall – uh, where you have issue with one of the bricks <laughs> or something right. uh, versus having no wall and complaining about, you know, whatever doctrinal issue. Um, and, and, and so personally, you know, I would be much more apt to go head to head with somebody arguing over um, chapter one of the confession, chapter two of the confession, chapter three, even chapter seven 
um, you know, these points of doctrine and truth that I think are very essential um, and very, very important to our view of Christianity. Uh, and when it comes to the the chapter on the Sabbath, you know, I would say, um, you know, these guys have their reasons. They have their exegetical reasons. They have, mm-hmm. you know, historical reasons. Um, but I am not going to be as dogmatic and I'm not going to fight as hard over this as I would uh, the doctrine of the triune God or even his decree or oh, providence yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if somebody loves the confession and they have a, an issue with the way they address the Sabbath, I would say that's okay. Love the confession and have an issue with the Sabbath, uh, the way they address that. Because, um, and I do want to make this clear, that even the confession itself at the very end of chapter one uh, makes it clear that the word of God is the ultimate authority. It is the ultimate standard of truth. Um, and so, you know, what you're doing, I think, is is key. Um, and that is you are testing everything that you're seeing in this historical document uh, by the word of God. You're testing it. You're taking it through the flames of the word of God. And this is a place where you aren't compelled by their arguments. You're not compelled necessarily by some of the language. And, and I think they would love the fact uh, that, we are, that we are doing that, that we are testing this document by the word of God, uh, because even they said that, that it is primary. Um, so, yeah. And these, these Westminster divines, they knew that they were not infallible. And I appreciate that very much so. They know the confession is not infallible, but it does contain the word of God in it that is infallible, if that makes sense. Finally, I want to discuss chapter 24 of marriage and divorce. And I'm going to read sections five and six, and we can discuss um, adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out of a, out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion to their own case so this issue is unfortunately close to my heart i've been through a divorce where i was the innocent party and when i say that i don't mean that i was just this perfect guy but I did not break the covenant. Um, my spouse, you know, uh, committed adultery and would not reconcile. And I believe the Bible is clear that divorce is permitted in cases of adultery and abandonment, just like the confession states. Now, obviously, I always tell people I love marriage. You should seek to reconcile, reconcile the marriage. But we have to follow how the Bible teaches us to love one another within the marriage covenant. And however, that does not always happen. Many times one person in the marriage wants to reconcile and the other wants to dissolve that commitment. So, Tyler, how do you handle divorce and remarriage? Yeah, well, um, 
I would go here to the confession as the standard of, of doctrine and practice. And, um, and I think they're dead on. I think they're dead on exegetically. Yep. And when I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, um, I preached through the whole thing in like 85 sermons. And when I came to that, that text about divorce, um, this is the position that I put forth. And, uh, and to show our church that what I was saying was the historical Protestant view of divorce and remarriage, I quoted the Westminster Confession um, that they could see that. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think this is this is exactly right. Um, in the beginning of five, um, you know, when they talk about the contract, I take that to be, um, you know, when people are engaged to be yeah. married, they're not yet married. Um, that if there is fornication, if there's adultery or, or something like that, the uh, uh, the contract can be breach. You don't have to get married. You can move on. Um, and then after marriage, uh, adultery, um, the innocent party, if if adultery has been committed, um, they have a right to divorce biblically and they have a right to remarriage. Um, and when they use that language uh, as if the offending party were dead and they quote Romans 7, um, you know, that's where Paul is using marriage as an argument for uh, the covenantal arrangement where where one dies, the covenant is over. So mm-hmm. for the Westminster Divines, uh, adultery uh, brings us to the place where the covenant has been broken, the vows have been broken, uh, there's been a one flesh union with another person. And um, and so in that way, um, a kind of death has occurred in their minds. Uh, which allows for a lawful divorce and remarriage. Um, and then they add also, you know, 1 Corinthians 7, where if a believer is abandoned by an unbeliever, um, the, the believer is free to let the unbeliever go, uh, and they're free to be to be remarried. Um, but it, it is very important, I think, too, to see the end of six, uh, especially in our culture, where everything is very individualistic, um, you know, nobody wants to have anybody in their business. Uh, the Westminster Divines here make it very clear that if something like this happens, uh, it is the business of of, um, of authorities. Um, it is the business of elders and pastors and and teachers to help um, you know couples work through this uh, to make sure that things are what they really are, to make sure that the steps that are being followed are biblical. Um, but yeah, I affirm this section a hundred percent. Um, you know, as a pastor, if I had somebody that came to me and they wanted to be remarried, um, after being divorced, if their divorce did not fall into these categories, um, I would not remarry them to whoever their, uh, their new potential spouse would be. Um, so yeah, I, I affirm this, um, you know, divorce is a very painful thing. Um, we don't want to make it any worse for people than it already is, but we want to obey the scriptures. And I think the Westminster divines really help us um, uh, to do that here. Yeah, I think this is a really important chapter of the confession that churches should stand on. Now, obviously, I believe that because I've been through it, so I have a personal bias, and I'll admit that. However, you know as well as me that it's it's very common occurrence, and there should be a standard that we look to, obviously the Bible, but even codified in in the Westminster, instead of leaving it to a church leader's opinion on, you know, whether it was right or wrong, because there are some churches that 
do not recognize divorce whatsoever at all. Yeah. And you you can't be a leader there. You can't serve there because of your remarriage or your divorce. And it's I, you know, I won't really comment any further, but I, I, I don't I think a, a standard should be held to instead of that's very legalistic and, and really shuts people down. Um, but again, I'm, I'm for obeying the scriptures as well, and I don't believe people should be remarried that have been divorced for unbiblical reasons. But if they were, there's grace for that, too, and they're not unsavable. So, um, yeah. Tyler, well, you I, know, I one of the things that I, I think is important um, is that – so back to the, the, ne- the necessity of a confessional standard for a church – you know, if if the opinion on divorce and remarriage is changing with every pastor that's coming in and out of a church, right? Um, you have a church that has no stability. They have no idea how to really handle divorce and remarriage. They have no idea what you know what they should be doing or what the standard is or how it works. And so, you know, when you're thinking about a church and its future and um, and its members. Having a confession that has something like this in it that lays out for us a standard, an, an exegetical um, summary of Christian truth and doctrine regarding divorce and remarriage, um, this puts the church on a path of always knowing um, what is biblical, what is expected, what is okay. And they're not being tossed to and fro by every pastor or preacher that comes in with a different opinion. And, uh, and I think that's very important. I, I think, you know, this is a James White quote, but inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. And if the church has inconsistent opinions on something this this serious, I th- they've, they've failed in leadership, in my opinion. And this really needs to be tightly held on to uh, because we live in a culture that's just so ready to divorce. And, and we need to be encouraging that reconciliation, but also have grace and love and, and doctrinal support for the people that are going to end up divorced. And that was unfortunately my case. Um, Tyler, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on my show to discuss the Westminster Confession of Faith. Do you have any final exhortations to the listeners? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, it's been a blast. Um, I feel like we could sit here for hours and talk oh, about the yeah. confession, and we could pick it apart and go chapter by chapter. And and um, you know, I'd love to come back and talk about some more. Um, I, I guess my exhortation to the listeners would be, um, you know, definitely to read the confession for yourself. Um, read it, study it, get a version. Um, a hard copy version or a print copy that has all the proof text so you can read and and then look down and see what Bible verses they're using to argue their case. Um, You know, if you're going to take it up as your standard, uh, do it with conviction because you have seen it to be faithful and and biblical. And, and, um, and I have, I, I love it. I think it's so rich. It's so wonderful. Every time I read through it, I learn something new. I see a proof text that that they use that, you know, shocked me or or uh, excited me. Um, but then I would also encourage our listeners as they're they're reading through it and they're learning. Um, if it's OK, I'd like to recommend a few resources uh, yes. that might help people um, to learn to learn better about the confession. Um, now, this one, take it or leave it. But B.B. Warfield, Volume 6 of his collected works, he wrote a whole uh, volume on the Westminster Assembly and its work. And it, it, it gives a wonderful history 
of, of how it all came together, how it was put together. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, book on the history of the, the assembly and its work. Um, but as far as studying the actual substance of the confession and the catechisms, uh, G.I. Williamson wrote a wonderful um, study. It's called A Study Guide of the Westminster Confession. Um, it's wonderful, and I would highly recommend that for anybody who wants to read the confession uh, with some help alongside of it uh, to help them understand it better. Um, you know, after they've read through that, A.A. A. Hodge wrote one that's very excellent, very um, highly esteemed. And there are plenty of others, uh, but those two I'd like to recommend. And then as far as the catechisms, uh, the shorter catechism is the most famous, the most well-known. Um, and Thomas Watson, uh, the great Puritan Thomas Watson, wrote um, a lot on the catechism, uh, the body of divinity. Uh, sometimes you can find it in one volume. I have the three-volume set where uh, he writes uh, really a commentary and a study on the catechism. Uh, so the three volumes that I have, it's called Body of Divinity, um, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And basically what he does is he takes the catechism as his outline and he exegetes it using scripture and it's wonderful. Um, and then a, a shorter single volume, Thomas Vincent, he was a Puritan. Uh, he also wrote a study, an exegetical study on the catechism. So those are excellent resources uh, for anybody who wants to read up on and study the confession or the standards and uh, highly recommend. Awesome. Well, I hope I didn't butcher the old English too bad. Uh, that is, <laughs> it is the bane of my theological existence. Um, I know the Puritans have wonderful things to say, but I have such a hard time reading some of it. Um, I don't, how did you, how did you come to like, I know you, you told me you, you love spending time with dead guys. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. How not physically, you... but yeah, for sure. <laughs> He's got to make that that knows. <laughs> How did you like learn to read through that? I mean, what can I do? Well, the thing I would do, um, is especially if you really don't like it, um, I mean, trying to read through something with lots of that that you don't like, that's just, that's awful, you know? Um, but as far as the, you know, the Puritans and even the confession, for, for somebody who's trying to read through the confession, and man, it's just a real struggle trying to get through some of that language. They do have modernized, um, updated versions that use easier language. Okay. Uh, so somebody can, you know, you can Google that and find it. You can buy versions where you've got the original. Um, and really, the original is what's going to carry weight in a denomination or something because the mm -hmm. language is so original. Um, but you can buy versions where you've got the original on one side and uh, a modernized uh, language on the other side. So that might be, you know, step one um, to to read an easier version. And the same goes with the Puritans. You know, I know this is not even on the radar for what we're supposed to be talking about, but, uh, you know, Banner of Truth puts out those, um, those Puritan paperbacks that are abridged and the language is updated. And I think that's an excellent way to be introduced to the Puritans and John okay. Owen, who is notoriously difficult, um, they, they, they put those things together so well that they are, they're a joy to read. Um, so yeah, that would be my advice. And then I don't know. Well, that, that's great. I, I will, um, 
I will look into those sources and, and feel free to send me some links to that. And this is why I am not a King James onlyist. I can't read the King James. I just yeah. can't do it. I mean, it number. I mean, there there are significant problems with the King James, in my opinion, especially um, they do not differentiate um, Hadith from Gehenna, and they just translate it hell the entire time. Yeah. So it talks about Christ being left in hell, and you're going, oh. Yeah, well, you know, I I had a guy once. This was years ago now, but but he would fight tooth and nail over the fact that Jesus died and went to hell, and he suffered there for our sins. And after talking to him long enough, I realized that he was making this theological argument because of a bad translation. That's correct. Um, So yeah, I'm with you. The the King James is as wonderful as it is, and as as uh, as beautiful as the history is, mm-hmm. uh, we definitely have to be careful for sure. I, I get this. There, there's a there's a two hour interview you can watch on YouTube, and it it's with James White and Stephen Anderson. And James White is beautifully patient with this guy. And Anderson is going off about, oh Christ, he went to hell, and 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 that's why it's translated that way. And 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 James White sitting there going, you you do understand there are two different terms for the afterlife in the New Testament, right? Right. And and Anderson's like, yeah, I get that, but the King James is an, is an errant. And it's it it becomes the English text is now the inspired text, and that's just bad, really bad. Right. So, right. Yeah. So I, I won't rabbit trail on that too much for our listeners, but um, I do want to start discussing textual criticism on my show eventually. And I um, I, I know some people that do it. There's um, I have connections with people that have connections, so I'll see if I can start pursuing that. But Tyler, God bless you. Thank you for coming on the show. And until next time, everyone, it depends on how you look at it.